That powerful song, and for those of you who want to follow along in the main text today, we'll be in Revelation chapter 1. On this Easter Sunday, Revelation chapter 1 will be our main text. So I received a word of encouragement yesterday, a message, as I was putting in the final preparations for this sermon, and the message was a meme, and it said, there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. I agree. So thank you to uh, anybody in the Scotio family that sent that to me. So I will keep that in mind. Uh, Revelation 1, we'll be in a few other places, but Revelation 1 will be the main text. Uh, about five years ago, I signed up to do a little boxing training, like some one-on-one boxing training. Not because I want to become a boxer, not because I want to become a fighter, but because it's a good workout. I'll admit, it feels good to punch something, a punching bag, and if a trainer's holding mitts and you make, well, I didn't do it just now, but you hit the mitt and it makes that popping noise, that feels good. And I've battled with and struggled with stress and anxiety over the years, so I felt like boxing would be a good outlet to get that out of my system. I didn't want to fight anybody, I just wanted to work out. Well, about eight sessions into the ten sessions that I signed up for, the trainer said, I think you're ready to spar. Do you want to spar next week? Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, not at all. I don't have any desire to spar, but I didn't want him to think I was a wimp or scared, so the words that came out of my mouth were, yeah, let's do that next week. I showed up the next week. I was nervous. They wrapped my hands, put a glove on me, or two gloves on me, put my mouthpiece in. He had picked an opponent for me, and right before the match, Uh, He said the boxing ring was being used, so we're going to use the octagon. So we get inside this cage. He closes the door and locks it behind us so nobody would fall out in case they get knocked out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, should I be doing this right now? I I have two children at home. This doesn't sound safe. By the way, nobody ever asked me to sign any kind of medical release form or anything like that. So I'm nervous. We start the round. The bell rings. We're doing a little throwing some jabs, kind of starting to, you know, fill out your opponent. And about 20 seconds into it, this guy just hauls off and punches me right in the nose. And when he punched me, I fell back up against the cage, and I let out a loud grunting, screaming noise. I was like, oh, like that. So they stopped it immediately, and the trainer said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I think I'm okay. And he said, see, I told you, it doesn't hurt to get punched in the face. To which I said, man, I think you have a head injury because that hurt. I didn't like that at all. I did not enjoy that one bit. I got in my car that day, after it was over with three or four rounds, my head's pounding, and I thought to myself, like a special revelation, maybe there's a better way of dealing with anxiety than doing this. Like, this can't be that healthy, which by the way, here's a little teaser, starting next week we're going to be talking about emotionally healthy discipleship, which I'm really looking forward to this series, and I think it can be helpful to us as we grow. As a church, we want to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Christ. So this falls right in line with what our mission statement is. So we'll talk about emotionally healthy discipleship, but this trainer that said that to me, this is what I would call the obvious gap. It was obvious to him that it does not hurt to get punched in the face, but that was not so obvious to me. Okay, the scripture that Joshua read for us earlier today from Luke 24, we'll briefly touch on Luke 24 and Acts 1 before we get into Revelation 1. But this is Easter morning, that first Sunday morning when the ladies who had been so faithful to Jesus, they go to the tomb 
and two men that are dressed in white, or I guess the NIV said shining like lightning or something like that. We're assuming they're angels. They're there to greet the women, and they ask this question in Luke 24 and verse 5. Why do you look for the living uh, among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Okay, we've heard that Easter Sunday, year after year. But as I was doing my own reading the last month or so, uh, that question just made me laugh a little bit. There is some kind of gap between the angels and the human beings. Because to the angels, it's a no-brainer. What are you guys doing here? Why are you showing up to the tombs? He's not dead. But to these ladies that have showed up, they're like, we watched him die. We know that he is buried right there. What is completely obvious to the angels is not so obvious to the human eye. So there's an obvious gap. And then in Acts chapter 1, which we believe Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So it's a continuation in Acts chapter 1. The resurrected Jesus, he has appeared to his apostles and anybody that he was planning on appearing to. He's given them final instructions, and in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, hey, you're going to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, it says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid hid him from their sight. This is what we would call the ascension. In verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Again, we assume this is angels. They know the right time to show up and they ask a question that to them seems like a no-brainer. Verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. This is another one of those obvious gaps. The angels are like, What are you doing? You're standing here mindlessly looking into the sky. Don't do that. But from the apostles' perspective, they're probably thinking, we just saw something that nobody else has ever seen before. Not only did this guy die, but now he's back to life, and now he's just disappeared before our sight. But the angels are like, well, what are you doing? He will come back the same way you just saw him leave. There's this obvious gap is what I'm calling it that takes place here. And so my first question before we get into Revelation chapter 1 is why is it so obvious to the angels but it's not so obvious to the human eye? What's the difference in communication and what it is that is so obvious? Like why can the angels see it but the humans don't see it or at least they don't see it right away? Well, I would argue that what the angels are seeing They are seeing the unseen. They are getting a peek behind the curtain into the heavenly realms. They see something that that we don't see with our human eyes. That's why it's so obvious to the angels, but not so obvious to the human being. But the book of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 1, invites us to join John the Revelator, John on Patmos, to look behind the curtain for just a moment. And to see something that maybe what the angels were seeing that we don't really normally see with our human eye. So we're going to spend the next few minutes on Easter morning uh, studying Revelation chapter 1. Because I think Revelation gives us, uh, at least the language that's used here, a broader perspective on the, English, on the Easter story. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 gives us a beautiful and powerful and layered description of Christ. Uh, I will go ahead and say this for all of you who are 
Consider yourself experts or maybe armchair quarterbacks of the book of Revelation. I realize that in chapter 1, there are a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. There are so many that I'm not going to stop and say, hey, this is Daniel 7, this is Zechariah 12. I'm just going to read it, and I want it to be powerful for us as it was intended to be. So let me start by reading Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us a kingdom, priest serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Look, he is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alright, that that's a powerful... Go ahead and say it again, Aaron. Amen to what John just wrote. What a way to describe God the Father and God the Son. Let's go back through that briefly. In verse 4, he describes God as the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. Did you notice in our second song today, Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, we requested that song because that's what we're singing in that song. The one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. Greek scholars would tell you that John pretty much invents some Greek, Greek language here to describe God. Now, the great I am, what we were singing right before I got up here, uh, this is an extension of the great I am from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 uh, at the burning bush when God tells Moses, I am who I am. Here John is taking that title and elaborating on it. He is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the God of the past in the present, and the future, and He's not done yet. In verse 5, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. His death on a cross will bear testimony for the entire world to see. He is the firstborn among the dead. Jesus conquered death, never to die again. And He is the ruler of the kings of this earth. Not Caesar, because this was written in the first century, and not anybody else. Jesus is the true King of kings. In verse 7, John gets this future revelation. He says, look, He is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see Him. It will be a worldwide event, even those who pierced Him. He is coming again. In verse 8, He's the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning and the end, the Almighty. And what a powerful way to describe our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want to move on now to John's vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 18. For John, here, on the island of Patmos, exiled to Patmos, he sees something that we don't often see with our human eye. The curtain is pulled back for him. That obvious gap that I was talking about then maybe what the angels could see that the humans couldn't see, now John gets a glimpse into this. And he invites us to join him to see this dramatically powerful Jesus 
who is also gentle and caring at the same time. And I think he invites us to use our imagination. Let's read Revelation 1, 9 through 18. I, John, your brother, who share with you in the persecution and the kingdom and the endurance in Jesus, who was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. After John writes this, the early Christians started to refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Sunday is the resurrection day. So John, on the island of Patmos, in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, he said, I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And we'll see those seven letters to those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. But now the vision of Christ that he sees in verse 12. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. Whatever it is that John saw here, he is attempting to describe the indescribable. That's why I said he is inviting us to look behind the curtain and not, he doesn't appeal to logic here, he appeals to our imagination. If you kept reading through Revelation, especially the seven letters of the seven churches, he unpacks these different descriptions of Christ that he has seen here. But this is what he sees. He comes into the presence of the resurrected Jesus and the second coming Christ. There's a, a band, a Christian band called Mercy Me that I know a lot of you have heard of. The lead singer is a guy named Bart Millard. Here's a fun fact about Bart Millard. He's from Greenville, Texas, where I'm from. When he was 19 years old, he lost his father. And while he was grieving, going to the funeral, there were so many people who meant to comfort him, who would tell him things like, hey, your dad is in a better place now. God was ready to take him home. And although people meant well by those comments, it didn't really bring him much comfort because he was grieving so much. So somebody encouraged him to start writing in a journal during that time. Somebody wisely told him to do that. And then he fast forward about nine years later. He's in his late 20s. He found that journal. And he's going back through what he was journaling around the time that he lost his dad. And every time that somebody said, your dad's in a better place now. God wanted to take him home. In the margins, he would write, I can only imagine. And after he read through that journal, he got a pen, and a sheet of paper, and in less than 10 minutes, he wrote out the lyrics to this song that we know of as I can only imagine. He said it's the only song that he wrote out, took him less than 10 minutes, and he never changed a lyric from that original draft. Now this song, I can only imagine, it went on to become song of the year, song of the decade. Uh, it has brought comfort to millions of people. I have sat here, or stood here at this pulpit for many funerals where we played this song. I can only imagine. The song 
invites us in a powerful way to imagine what will it be like someday be in the presence of Jesus. Will I dance for you, Jesus, or will I and all of you be still? Well, I've often said, even though I love this song, I think we know the answer to what we will do when we're in the presence of Jesus. Much like what John does here. John said in verse 17, he wrote this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This dramatically powerful Jesus requires all the reverence that we possibly have. John's reaction was to fall at the feet of Jesus as though dead. Jesus is dramatically powerful, but he's still gentle and caring. And so John said the next thing he does is he placed his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So after John is completely overwhelmed with what he sees falling at the feet of Jesus, Jesus lifts him up. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then in verse 18, he says, I am the living one. In the middle of verse 18, he says, I was dead. Now look, I am alive forever and ever. Pause on that. Easter Sunday, we're here celebrating the resurrection, the empty tomb. What Jesus has said to John is the Easter story from Jesus' own perspective. I was dead. And now I am alive forever and ever. I thought maybe that would get another amen out of you, Aaron. That's a powerful step. Let me say it again. I was dead, and now I'm alive forever and ever. There we go. Man, what a powerful statement from Jesus. But he follows that up by saying, I hold the keys of death and Hades. That may be the part in Revelation 1 and for this year in Easter that I've really dwelled on the most. And it's probably because something that happened to me a couple weeks ago. Jessica was invited by Hope Network to be a part of a, a cohort for preacher's wives, which I'm very thankful that they're now investing in the soul care of not just preachers, but preacher's wives. It's been a big deal. It's been four months in the planning. And one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted her to be able to go and be fully present. So I wanted to assure her, hey, I can take care of our our children while you're gone for two days. Uh, And so I I needed her to have the confidence in that. It was a Friday morning, Christian had to play at school. You go to school at White Oak, they send the kids, they kind of shove them in your face, take them home at about 9 a.m. So I took my son home with me, and we had to wait till 3 o'clock to go pick up my daughter. Jessica leaves to go on this retreat. About an hour and a half into her drive. Christian and I are going to leave the house for just a little bit. I go to the spot where my keys normally are, and they're not there. So for a moment, I'm like a little bit of semi-panic, like, where are my keys? I started to frantically search the entire house, looking in drawers, turning up cushions on the couch, looking everywhere I could possibly think of. And by this point, I was in like full-blown panic mode. My wife has finally gone to this retreat. And I'm about to have to call her and say, hey, I'm a dum-dum. I can't find my keys anywhere. I'm not even going to be able to pick up her daughter from school, and she's going to have to turn around and come back. And Christian, who was helping me, he's seven years old, uh, he was kind of scared because he could see the panic in me, and he told me later that day he also heard police sirens outside, so he was really afraid. 
It may not sound that dramatic to you, but it was a dramatic moment for us. And I thought, man, I think the last place that I had my keys was in the van. Jessica's in the van. She's about two hours away at this point. Now, thankfully, I found the keys. So what a dramatic ending. We were okay. The kids were okay. I found the keys. But that moment made me think. It's like immediately, maybe it's because I'm a preacher, I thought, wow, keys are really important. And I don't ever think about how important keys are until I don't have them. I don't have one of those cars that you just put your thumbprint on it or type in a code and then press buttons or uh, across the parking lot you can start it. I have to actually go to it with a key, open it, and turn it on. And when I don't have those keys, I don't have access to my car. I don't have access to my house. I don't have access to the church building or to my office. It dawned on me that day. I thought about it for the rest of the day. Keys are incredibly important. We kind of take it for granted. We don't think about it much until we don't have them anymore. And if you think about what keys can signify, keys signify a beginning and an ending and access. If you've ever sold a house, you can do all the paperwork, you can do all the negotiations, sign the papers, do whatever, but it's not really official until you hand over those keys. And when you hand over the keys, you no longer have privileged access to a place that you once called home. But the same thing is true if you're buying a house. It's official when you get your hands on those keys. Now you have special access somewhere because you have the keys. About six years ago, I said goodbye to a church that I had ministered to and ministered among them for nine years. And on... You know, we said our goodbyes, it was tearful goodbyes, it was kind of a long month of saying goodbye to everybody, but it dawned on me that it was a a very official when I took my church key and my office key and took them off my keychain and set them on the secretary's desk. That was an emotional moment for me because I was handing the keys over, never to have access to that building again. But then I came here and I received new keys. So keys have this significant moment, milestones in our life where it ends one chapter in our life, it can begin a new chapter, it gives us special privilege. And in verse 18 when Jesus says, I'm the living one, I'm the first and the last, I'm the living one, I was dead and now I'm alive forever and ever, and guess what he now has? He has the keys of death and Hades. That's what the death, burial, and resurrection accomplished is we can put our full and complete confidence and trust in Jesus Christ because He has the keys of something that is almost unexplainable to us, death and Hades. There's a commentator named Warren Worsby that puts it this way, and I want to share this quote with you because I like it. He said, we need not fear life because He is the living one. We need not fear death because He died and is alive, having conquered death. And we need not fear eternity because he holds the keys of death and Hades. And then he ends that quote with saying, the one with the keys is the one who has authority. This Easter morning, as we look behind the curtain with what the angels saw, what John the Revelator saw, what we're told is what we can trust in. Jesus was dead and now he's alive forever and ever. And because of that, he holds the keys to death Hades. That's what we celebrate on this Easter morning. In December of 2016, 
I came across this news story. Occasionally, I'll print off a news story or save it, file it away for a future sermon illustration. It was a really short news report. It was about a man from Cleveland, Ohio, who was found dead one morning on his front porch with keys in his hand. The wind chill that day had dropped to about negative 10 degrees, and so he died from exposure to the cold. And as I've read that, I thought, man, how sad is that? He was that close to his front door, keys in hand, that close to being behind warmth and safety. And I don't know if he fainted, but he just didn't quite make it. And I was, I was thinking about it this week. I also thought, I wonder if maybe he did make it to the door, but realized he had the wrong keys. There's no way of knowing. But I, I've thought of that story, and I've kind of read back over it for the last five or six years, and decided to use it today, because as I think about how Jesus says, I have the keys of death in Hades, it would be a shame for us to get to the end, never having put our trust in the one who truly does hold the keys of death in Hades. I think a helpful practice for myself at this point in my life and for all Christians is to make a statement of faith. What is it that you believe? So a few months ago when we were preaching on the Apostle Thomas and talking about faith and doubt, I told you here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He came to this earth in, in the incarnation, in the form of a human being. He lived a sinless life. His love drove Him to the cross. And by His blood, we can have forgiveness of sins. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He resurrected on the third day. He appeared to many people. He ascended to heaven and He is coming back. There's a statement of faith for you. But, as we read Revelation chapter 1, I think what I might add to that he is the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. I believe He is the Alpha and the Omega. I believe that He died, and He is alive now forever and ever, and He holds the keys to death and Hades. And as Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Look, He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. If you need to come to know this Jesus Please come talk to me or one of our shepherds. Let's continue to sing. Please stand back up.